listening to the Detroit Bad Boys podcast coming to you a few days later than you might have gotten used to. I hope you didn't get too used to it. I mean, we're only three episodes in to this new format and this new season. Because of the West Coast Swing, we wanted to give you as much game content as possible, so decided to push the recording a little bit. And uh, if you want to stay up to date on the podcast, the best way to do so is finding it in one of two places. One would be on iTunes. Make sure to subscribe there. New episodes will be posted as soon as they are up. Uh, most new episodes being posted on Monday. Uh, you can also find it on Blog Talk Radio, just searching Detroit Bad Boys. And the home of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast, DetroitBadBoys.com. You should be going there already to find all of your Detroit Pistons articles, content, just a good daily laugh, a great site to go to, and the home and supporter site of this little podcast. Joining me this week, just to make it difficult, I have two Bens in studio. As I do every week, one of those Bens is Ben Galker. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing great. I hope everyone listening is doing uh, really well, too. Yes, and also joining us all the way from Australia. Technically, but I'm in Indianapolis right now, so not really. Oh, okay. So in the Midwest, but still, by way of Australia, currently in Indiana, is Ben Q, as he is known, on Detroit Bad Boys. How are you doing, Ben? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. So I think to make this easy, we'll go with Quag and Gulker. Maybe I'll just go Quag and Gulker and totally stay away from Ben. That's fine. That's perfect. Okay. That gets too messy. Yeah, that's right. It is. Uh, So we are just uh, a day removed now from the second loss of the season uh, to Golden State last night. Uh, Blow it up. What's that? We've got to blow it up. It's done. Season's over. Season's over. Yeah. We're seven games in and it's all over. Yeah. Golden State staying undefeated. You know, the Pistons looked like how teams look when you're coming off of back-to-back like that, especially on a West Coast swing that we're now just in the middle of. Uh, So Golden State for me, I guess we can start with Golden State and work backwards. Uh, Golden State, the game kind of went how I expected. It was started a little slow, found ourselves down for most of the game, and then in the fourth quarter, Golden State just kind of ran away with it. Was there anything that was surprising to either of you in this game? Quag, you and your beautiful accent, I think, need to go first. (laughs) (laughs) Well... The only thing that was really surprising to me was how excellently KCP defended Curry. Like, everyone says that he's got the reputation as an amazing defender, but we haven't really seen, like, him lock down, like, to the extent that you can lock down Curry, like, such an amazing offensive player. And I think last night, like, really showed me something that, like, he's someone that we can actually include in this young call for the future, like, on the same plane as, like, Drummond and Jackson. I agree. That was definitely one one of the things I took away was that KCP did look good, and then I think the other thing that I liked and that was a positive in the game was the play of Stanley Johnson off the bench, getting big minutes Absolutely. and then giving us his first 20-point performance of his career. A lot of buzz in my Twitter feed and in the comments around the web expressing a lot of disappointment in Stanley Johnson, and I think that's exacerbated by the fact that uh, Winslow is performing pretty well, and Winslow's obviously the guy we passed on to select Johnson. But I've been saying this since the preseason. I think this kid has a future in the league. He's 19 years old, and the way that he looks on the court for 19 is incredible to me. He just hasn't been able to turn that into real production until last night. And I think you know what he did on the floor 
last night is a preview of what I think we can expect for a long time to come. So, you know, Quag talking about KCP stepping up and maybe emerging as a third core piece. I think Stanley Johnson, maybe he's a little closer than we thought, or at least than I thought. Uh, and I thought he really played well. And I, I think a lot of people, if they can just be patient, are going to be really happy with the player that Stanley Johnson becomes. I agree. And just the future of KCP and Stanley Johnson on the wings is really enticing, especially because they're both such young players and they already have developed enough skills on the defensive end that they're kind of our go-to guys at times. So it's nice that I think that's that's a big part of the core of this team moving forward, especially next to Reggie Jackson and Andre Drummond with the way that they've started the season. Uh, you've got basically four positions where you've got, if not a current starter, a future starter that looks like part of a successful core and nucleus for this team. Um, I was just going to say about Winslow, in fairness to Johnson, I think Winslow's cast around him in Miami is a lot better like their bench-wise. Like, you look at our bench, like Johnson is pretty much the only person capable of creating something considering what we've seen from Steve Blake so far. So I think you look at like who Winslow's got, he's got McRonkwitz, he's got... Um, now they've got Ben Udrick, so I think like he's in a much better position to succeed straight away, considering who they've got, and like that's why I think Stanley struggled early on so far. Yeah, and what I was going to contribute was one of the lineups we talked about. I think in the very first podcast was would Stanley Johnson emerge as a quality defender at the three, and would that be sort of a a clutch lineup where Johnson steps in at the three and Morris slides over to the four? Could that be potentially our best defensive lineup? And um, it's still too early to say with any sort of finality about Stanley, of course. But again, I think last night we got a little glimpse that that might actually be the case and it might be, not be too far down the road. And that, to me, that lineup's really interesting and might be a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, it's also, I think, a great lineup if we want to push the pace. Because you've got five guys who can really run the floor, young athletic players. You're right. I think that's an exciting lineup, and I bet what fans want to see, the question, of course, is is that the lineup that Stan Van wants to see, especially with the way he has coached and controlled this team to this point in the season. And we've been successful, so you know I'm, I'm not looking to, to change that, but you're right, there's a lot of potential in that starting five. In that, uh, starting five. Yeah, Quags, you had mentioned Steve Blake, and I think that's been one of the bigger disappointments so far was, and maybe it was wrong of me to do this, but I was really thinking that Steve Blake would be a nice short-term stopgap at the backup point guard spot. And last night, even though it's Golden State, and I know that's a tough matchup for everyone right now, having five turnovers, it's just not the output we need. And I'm starting to really worry about that spot because his play on the bench is just so important, and we can't keep running Reggie Jackson out there for 40 minutes a night. Yeah, he just looked really old last night. Well, he's looked really old. Like, he's... I saw this on NBA.com earlier when I was just having a look at his stats, and I tweeted it out as well. He's actually shooting the ball a lot better, like in November. I think he's got it up to mid forties with field goal and three, but his assists have gone down from like five to one per game, and then his turnovers have doubled. So I don't know what's happened. Like it's either a trade-off; you either want him to shoot well or pass well. At this point, defending is just not even in the question at this moment. So. Yeah, Jordan, I'm with you in that I, I went into the season thinking Steve Blake would be what he's always been, which is a competent second or third point guard in limited minutes. I'm not ready to close the book on him yet because I do think he's had a couple nice games. I think I think he was Absolutely. actually pretty solid against Portland. Um, 
I think he got exposed against the Warriors, which is a young, fast, and let's not forget, historically dominant team. So I'm not surprised he struggled. Your concern's valid, though. Backup point guard, backup shooting guard, and backup small forward, those are really the three biggest weaknesses. And I would think that Blake either needs to step up soon or Dinwiddie's going to have to get a look because Reggie Jackson has been great, but he can't play 40 minutes a night, and we have to have something competent on both sides of the ball. So maybe Dinwiddie gets a look here pretty soon. And you saw what happened when Jackson went down at the end of the quarter. Oh, sorry, the start of the fourth, like he didn't come back, and we just lost all the momentum we could have built up. And like you don't want that to become like a major problem, especially if he does get injured before Jennings comes back, touch wood. So if you're relying on Dinwiddie and Blake, this momentum's going to fizzle out really fast. Yeah, and you're right. It's that, it's that momentum that the starters have had times where they can go on runs. At a certain point, it's just certain, some of the starters are going to have to come off the floor. I mean, Marcus Morris playing 43 minutes last night after coming off a back-to-back. I just, I'm worried about that in the long term. I think it's okay right now because, for the most part, these guys are in good shape and they haven't played a lot of basketball yet. There's just not a lot of minutes that they've accumulated so far this season. But going forward, I think that's the biggest thing I worry about is, is the bench what's going to cost us close games? Because the minute we have to take the starting five out, we're we're already at a loss. Yeah, and cumulative fatigue is absolutely a long-term concern. This is a a long season in the first couple of weeks, you're absolutely right. Guys are still relatively fresh. They can play back-to-back nights, you know, 35 to 40 minutes. But 50, 60, 70 games into the season, if, if we're neck and neck with a couple other squads looking for that 5, 6, 7, 8 seed like we've been talking about, these guys aren't going to be able to sustain that level of play for that amount of time. So we absolutely have to get stuff figured out. Uh, I don't know if that means a trade or not, because I think Anthony Tyler's going to He's going to start making some shots. Tolliver's going to help us. And hopefully Stanley Johnson can even out a little bit. But that still leaves the the one and the two, at least until Brandon Jennings gets healthy, with really some huge question marks. Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad we kind of started with the Golden State game because I think if we would have recorded this after the win against Portland, this would have been an absolute love fest, and we probably wouldn't have had included some of these things that we probably should worry about and maybe allow to be part of the conversation about this team. Because, you know, Monday, I pull up ESPN, and the power rankings, of course, were in the top 10, and we've moved up. You know, there was just so much excitement after that Portland game. Golden State, it's not that they brought me back down to earth, but it just kind of showed me some of the things that, you're right, Ben, over the course of a full season, those are the things that I'll be looking for uh, that will determine if this team is a playoff team or not. Yeah, so Reggie, Reggie Bullock, I think he has not he's not looked good when he's been in the regular season. But again, shot fantastically uh, in, the, in the preseason. So I think at some point, maybe in some of these games that aren't you know, quite so hotly contested, Bullock's going to have to get some extended looks because, yeah, KCP's young, he's athletic. He doesn't appear to be phased at all in back-to-back games. I mean, he, he stuck with Curry the entire night and did a fantastic job. But again, over 82 games, that is a long, grueling season. So Bullock, I think, has to get a look here relatively soon. I think uh, Dinwiddie is going to have to get a look. And um, they need to step up. They, the team needs them, and they need to step up in order for us to be successful over 82 games. Yeah, KCP's averaging 38 minutes a game so far this season. He's obviously not going to be able to keep that up, so Bullock really needs to, like, he's obviously going to get more opportunities as we get 
in this road trip. <clears throat> like you would think he might get some time against the Kings and maybe the Lakers. So if he needs to show something like to make Stan Van think, oh, I have another viable option here, at least until uh, Brandon and then later on Jody gets back because you can't continue to rely on KCP, especially his style of play, like really fast and tenacious. He's not going to be able to keep that up for 38 minutes a night for 82 games. That's very true. It's, it's not just the minutes, but also his style of play. So I think now we should go back to the Portland game just yes. to celebrate. Did both of you get to see the game or at least the fourth quarter of that game? Oh, yeah. So every single second. That's fantastic. So, Quags, go ahead. Just your thoughts on the Portland game. It was great. Yeah. That's, I don't know what else to say. That's it. it. Was Period. It was horrible. It was mind-bogglingly terrible, and then it was great. Yeah, saw Reggie Jackson hit the layup to cut it within six. I moved my car. I came back into the house, and we were up ten. It was the coolest Pistons fourth quarter I've ever ever been a part of. And also, Stan Van Gundy said the same thing, that he had never been a part of a fourth quarter like that in any of his time as a coach. It, it was really just, you, you could never hope for something like that. We may never see something like that the fourth quarter against Portland. I was just, I just It made the Spurs win last year look boring. In comparison, it was just like, oh, yeah, game winner. Who cares? Right, it really did. Yeah, I mean, that was historic. I mean, those are the kind of games as a fan that you experience once or twice in a lifetime of being a fan. I mean, it was, it was. I think every, every Pistons fan, no matter how skeptical and critical you might be of this team, which count me among those who, who've been that way the last few years, our inner fanboys just got unleashed. And I was, you know, jumping up and yelling in my living room like I did when I was a kid. It was it was a fantastic experience, and really, what a, I'm just really glad I left the game on because I was close to turning it off, and that would have been a huge mistake. Yeah, and I, I think it was a great showcase for how dominant Reggie Jackson and Andre Drummond have been at stretches this season. Reggie Jackson's fourth quarter was tremendous, but Andre Drummond again. This is it's not pretty, and I know Ben, we've talked about. How on previous podcasts we've talked about how we're worried with Andre Drummond, the development of that post game. But when you're putting up 2020s with the ease that he's doing it so far, and it still looks like there's more he could give you, that gets you very excited. That was the, the thing with the Portland game was there were just moments with Andre Drummond where, yeah, it's not pretty. It, it's just, it's still just good enough for him to be a completely dominant player on the floor. Absolutely, the the post game is Van Gundy's obviously playing the long game. So if he started last season feeding Drummond in the post, first 10, 15, 20 games, and it was ugly. This year, first handful of games, same thing, ugly. Against Portland, there are really only a couple moves that I thought looked looked really nice, but he's developing sort of that, you know, one or two dribbles, turn over the, the left shoulder for a nice little right-handed hook. That move, I think, is starting to feel natural to him. And if he could have that one move and then one counter move, I would be totally content if that's as far as he develops you know, over the next one to two years. Now, he did that have that fantastic you know, pump fake, spin, hop step, throw down that looked like Hakeem Olajuwon. But you know, most of the time, it, you know, just back him down, get within four to six feet, and, and master that hook shot, and I think he'll be all right. Uh, it's some of those other really you know, wonky put your head down off the dribble and throw up a reverse layup kind of moves that he needs to learn how to eliminate from his, from his post game. If I have one concern with last night, oh, sorry, not last night, with the Portland game, it's just the way Jackson got hot off the jump shots. 
and we've obviously talked about how he's not the greatest shooter like in the mid-range and then out from three. So I don't think you can rely on him to be as amazing as he was like getting hot through the mid-range. Like he was pulling up in mid-range. I'm thinking, that's not your shot. What are you doing? Oh, well done. It went in. I was <laughs> still being really frustrated that he was taking them. And then when he got hot, I didn't care. I wanted to touch everything. But I don't think we can rely on him. Like hopefully he can develop a consistent shot. But at this moment, I still want to see him attacking like the layups like he did after he got in front and not get, for lack of a better word, lucky that his mid-ranges and his threes were for him. Like, that second three was just stupid at the end, like where he just chucked it up because he saw Donald was going to get fouled. I mean, I, that shows good awareness, but I can't rely on that like without getting a little bit concerned. But again, that's a really small worry of mine right now. Yeah, it's I... a fair concern. I think it's a concern for Marcus Morris as well. I think I said this last week, and I think we saw some of this in the Portland game. Reggie has to be willing to take a couple open threes per game, though, because he is at his best when he's attacking the basket. But if teams are going to play five and seven feet under him off of every pick and roll, his game's not going to go the way we want it to, and he's not going to be able to help us the way he can. So he's got to knock down a couple of those pull-up threes, or at least take a couple of them. And he's shooting almost 40% from three this year. It's still, it's only 28 attempts, so there's a long way to go. But man, if he can shoot 39% from deep, he's going to be a dangerous, dangerous man with the ball in his hands. That's very true because, again, it's that pick and roll that right now with Drummond seems, it, it still doesn't seem like it's quite there. And if Jackson continues to shoot this well, it's just something else that teams have to worry about. You're right, when the ball is in his hands, especially because I don't see throughout the course of the season uh, this Jackson Drummond pick and roll being as non-existent as it's been. It's amazing that we're talking about them individually, that they've been dominant, because what we saw last year, especially in that 11-game stretch where the team didn't have Greg Monroe and they got to kind of find their chemistry together, it just looked like their success was going to be kind of based off of each other, and now it seems like it's they're finding ways to do it on their own. It's a bit like Phoenix, though, isn't it? Everyone found out about them when they had that amazing season a few years ago. So now they've developed this other, like, teams are so focused on Drummond when he rolls to the rim that Jackson's got to take that lane and get those layups up, those floating ones he did against Bromley, the reverses. It's like, they've caught on, sorry, they've caught on to the main method of how they like to kill teams from last season. So they've developed this plan B, if you will. I was trying to find, and I'm not sure if you guys saw it, uh, an article on SB Nation about how this Pistons team is different from past Stan Van Gundy teams. And part of what it talked about was how the pick and roll, and at least your and Quagsy just basically said the same thing, how teams' fear of the pick and roll has led to some great looks for everyone else, and it's led to a lot of really easy layups and lanes for Reggie Jackson. So while they may not be able to find each other to the same success, it's basically opened up the offense in a way that, they probably didn't really expect, but Jackson has been good enough at kind of improvising in the moment that it's paid off to this point, and he's still been able to find his own shot. Uh, so they, they talked about that. and The suffocating defense is the reason they are 5-1. They're forcing the... that we are second in the league in allowing uh, attempts in the restricted area because we collapse so much. So we collapse to an extent that we are... Um, not allowing paint shots, but also 
he says that we're really good at also shutting off open corner threes because usually if you collapse, there's going to be open shooters in the corner. But he said that we've actually found a way so far to shut off both avenues of like really efficient ways to score. And also, just quickly, he said alluded to Van Gundy's teams in Orlando um, didn't force a lot of turnovers because of the personnel that they had. You know, guys like Courtney Lee, JJ Redick, Rashad Lewis, not noted amazing defenders. And they were finishing like in the mid twenties in turnover percentage for their opponents, but because we've got guys like KCP, Stanley Johnson, and Jackson so far this year doing really well, we can actually forcing opponents to turn it over on seventeen percent of their possessions, which is sixth in the league. And shout out to Andre Drummond there, leading the team in steals per game at just about two as a big man. That's like that's like what Ben Wallace used to do: harass passing lanes. And surprisingly, defend well when the pick and roll gets switched. So, yeah, KCP and Reggie deserve a shout out. But I, I gotta say something about Drummond there. Two steals a game—that's incredible. Yeah, I yeah. think I think it's time that we give Drummond his his share of the podcast minutes because, again, Player of the Week for the second straight week in the Eastern Conference. And it almost seems every game he enters into some sort of rarefied air, whether it's, you know, the first person to average 20 and 20 over a five-game stretch or all of these all of these statistically insane things that he's done through the first seven games. Gulker, I, wh- what is this? I, I'm so shocked by Andre Drummond's play so far because there are still times in the game where if I wasn't also watching the box score, I'm not sure if I would realize how easily he's getting 20 rebounds a game. Right, so the, the ease with which he's able to accomplish this is what's so incredible. Um, last, last night, I think it was during a press conference, uh, he said something to the effect of he, he didn't feel like he played well, and he still had something like 14 points and 16 boards, if I'm not mistaken. 14 and 16, I mean, the number of guys that can do that in the NBA on a consistent basis, you can count on one hand. And he feels like he didn't play well, and he had 14 and 16. And it's to the point where if he makes it to halftime and he's only got eight points and five boards, you feel like he's a non-factor, but that would still translate into 16 and 10 by the end of the game. He's become so dominant in terms of you know the inside scoring and the rebounding. Look, look at the league leaders behind him. He's surpassed them by more than anyone in his generation ever has. So, yeah, what we're seeing is the emergence of potentially, you know, the best the best rebounding big of a generation and and maybe more. I mean time will tell but maybe more. He's six rebounds a game in front of second place. Phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Six in front of second place. That's just incredible. And I I'm, it's basically the same number with offensive rebounds. Just his dominance there is just, it's amazing. And he's in a era right now of some pretty great young big men, uh, Anthony Davis included. Gulker, you're right to point out that he probably, for this era, is the most dominant rebounding big. It still gives him time to work on the rest of his game because it just seems that the rebound the rebounds are coming easy right now. Yeah, and what he's producing on the court, just the outputs, incredible. On paper, his box score, you know, the box scores on a nightly basis look incredible. But when you watch him play, you realize he's probably only half figured it out on the offensive side of the ball. Like, he's still so raw. There's still so much room for improvement. 
I mean, what's he going to look like when he does figure it out? What is his finished product going to be, and how incredible will it be when he gets there? Everyone knew he had the potential to average, like, maybe not 20 rebounds a game, but, like, 16 or so, which is probably, at the moment, a bit low for him. But I think the rate in which he's scoring at this moment in time, no one saw it coming. And also, just quickly, someone pointed it out to me that Porzingis, the Knicks rookie, is, I think, averaging three point something offensive rebounds a game, but that's the third in the league and Drummond's averaging seven per game. So it just shows like he's becoming, if not in the generation, maybe like as people have said, greatest since Wilts, like what they're throwing out early in the season. Yeah, there's I've seen a lot of really creative Wilt Chamberlain, Andre Drummond images on Twitter over the last few days. Uh and it's it's always alongside of that twenty and twenty number because yeah, it's just it's at the level that very few people have ever seen it. What is it? He has three games of 25 and 25 so far in his career, and of active players, there's only two, and those two only have two games. Like, it's it's incredible what he's doing right now. And they're both a lot older than him as well. Right, right. One I know is Al Jefferson. I think the other is Dwight Howard. Yeah, which makes sense given Stan Van Gundy's system. But still, you're right, Ben. We haven't seen the finished product. What is it going to look like when he's 26 or 27 years old, which should probably be the prime of his career? I know for bigs, usually it's on the younger end of the spectrum, but it still seems like he's probably a few years away from the prime of his career. Absolutely. So we have uh, three games left on this West Coast swing. Wednesday, we're at the Kings. Then Saturday, Sunday, we have the Staples Center back-to-back, starting with the Clippers and then the Lakers. What do you guys have the Pistons going through the next three games, and just in terms of record, and then what do you expect to see from the team in the next three? So I'll start with you, Quags. What do you have for a record over the next three, and what do you want to see from the Pistons just through the end of the week? So for the rest of the road trip, if not three, no, I think two and one is very easily attainable considering uh, the way we're playing and the way the Kings and Lakers have both looked so far this season. Like the Kings, for all the talent they've got, they just look abysmal in some aspects of the game, creating offense, relying on Rudy Gay for some unknown reason. If they've got Josh Smith, I don't know what those fans would be doing. Um, and then the Lakers, you know, Kobe's still taking, Kobe's taking, I don't know how many threes, but he's shooting it under 30, 25%, something stupid. So I think though, okay, we haven't had the best record against the Lakers recently for some unknown reason, considering how bad they've been. But I think we can, Definitely beat the Kings and the Lakers. As for the Clippers, it depends on how well I think Drummond can match Jordan and if KCP decides to defend Paul, even though Redick is actually really good on the screen. So the Clippers is the one concern I would hope, but I think the 2 and one easy. And Gawker, what do you have for a predi- uh, prediction over the next three? I wholeheartedly agree. The Pistons should expect to win two games and lose one. Uh, the Clippers at home, is they're... They're, they're a good team. It's going to be a tall order to beat them at, at home on the road. They're going to be – the Pistons are going to be tired by that point. So so that game could very well be a loss. But I think the Pistons have proven that they're the kind of team that should expect to go into the Staples Center and come out of it 2-0. That these should be games that they absolutely should win. And, and they should win – or, excuse me, um, I said that incorrectly, so you can cut that out. Mm-hmm. I said the Staples Center. They're going to lose to the Clippers at the Staples Center. I just said that. Um, but no, they should go into the Sacramento game and the Lakers game and 
they should expect to win those games. They they should have the expectation of themselves that they're going to the superior team them. They're actually going to go on the road and win those kind of games. That's the expectation they need to have of themselves. If there's one positive with the Clippers game, it's the first of the back-to-back on a day's rest. So that could actually be something that like they won't be as tired as when they do face the Lakers the next night. So if they're going to make a run, I think that's a good way to... Like, like no one thought we'd win in Atlanta on the first night, and we did. So I don't see any reason why they can't at least have the mindset. Like, we've got a day's rest. It's the first night of a back-to-back. There's no reason why we shouldn't play hard and have a go at this one like Golden State. And that was on the second night, and we nearly hung with them all the way. Right, and also the good news is then once Sunday night is over, our longest West Coast road trip for this season is done. Uh, so we're almost kind of just ripping the Band-Aid off because for so many Eastern Conference teams, that can be the toughest part of your schedule. So the fact that we're getting it out of the way, in previous seasons, this this stretch of games on the West Coast would just kill us. It would It would be just terrible stretches for us. And now it's almost like because we have the energy, we can get this out of the way now and then just go on to have success the rest of the way. So I actually like kind of like well. exactly because we're winning. So I kind of like that this West Coast trip happened so early in the season. But when I was looking at the schedule months ago, I was not saying that. I was absolutely dreading this this road trip. Absolutely. So absolutely. Looking at the first thirty games, I thought if the Pistons are thirteen and seventeen through 30, things will be okay. Like, they'll be on track. Now, I'm thinking, if they don't go 20 and 10, they're going to be disappointed with themselves, and probably rightfully so, because I I think they've proven that's the caliber of team they are. Absolutely, you're right. The first 30 games look difficult, but now with the way we're playing, and with so many teams like Chicago and Atlanta already being wins under our belt, yeah, we should should feel, hopefully it's not the best stretch, (laughs) Uh, of our season, but yeah, absolutely, we should expect uh, twenty games through that through that time. Um, for the next three, I, I agree with you guys. I would say two wins is what we should expect. Uh, a third would be fantastic to to find a win against the Clippers in the Staples Center, and they've been good at home the last few years. I think it will be a nice matchup to see DeAndre Jordan and Andre Drummond. But I'm really interested to see how we look against the Kings, and I just can't believe the tire fire continues in Sacramento. And that they didn't learn from us. How did they not know that playing Rudy Gay at the three next to two bigs who have spacing issues and cannot shoot is not going to work? I hope they don't go 28 games before they realize this. But the DeMarcus Cousins, Kostakofus front with Rudy Gay getting the ball so often and and playing pretty terribly so far to start the season. How did they not learn? In fairness, Cousins did make four threes the first game, so it's like when Josh Smith made three threes in his Pistons debut, everyone thought, oh my god, he can shoot now, and then he didn't, so at least Rudy Gay and Cousins can do have a semblance of shooting, but yeah, it's like the painful thing to watch is when Rudy Gay puts it on the floor and isolates, and then he just chucks up all these bricks, and it just makes you want to gouge your eyes out. That's you're, you're right. It's 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 terrible to watch, and I mean he's already shooting. I think it's thirty six percent on the season, and that's probably where he'll be. But I just felt like George Carl might be smart enough to know Rudy Gabe is probably best used at this point in his career as a stretch four, and he's gone the complete opposite direction. So I just hope the Pistons kind of to right the wrongs of last season just destroy the Kings. I, I would love to see a big win. Uh, just to continue this this dominance before we go into the weekend with the the Los Angeles teams. One word, 
Vivek Renadiv. That's that's why Rudy Gay is playing the three and not the four. It's all Vivek. That's right. It's the star name. It's the star power. Like Josh Smith, Rudy Gay. That's the fans will come. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Rishon Rondo. And they got Wesley Matthews as well. So yeah, who who knows what it would have been if they would have got Matthews as well. So and then they give up on Stauskas, the only person who actually could shoot on that team. Right, I think their best three-point shooter at this point in the season, if you're just looking at percentages, well, they did hold on to Omri Caspi. McLemore. Oh, yeah, that's true. McLemore could be that guy. He still just takes a lot of bad shots. It's strange to think that him and KCP are so close. Well, they were in the same draft class, right? Yeah, the one after the other picks. Yep. So this week with the podcast coming to everyone a little bit later, we decided to open it up to some fan questions through using the hashtag AskDBB. And continue to send us questions. The best way is probably through Twitter. Uh, you can also ask questions on the post when we have the post each week that includes the podcast. So you can ask questions on both places, but continue to do so. I think this could be a weekly segment of this podcast. So to kick off the SDBB, I'll turn it over to Gulker for the first question. So our first question came to us on Twitter from The Will to Win. And it asks, is this team for real, or should I keep a handle of Jack Handy when the hard times hit? Okay, so I think, yes, the team is for real, but I also think that you should always have a little bit of Jack Handy to celebrate the good times. Uh, I, I do think the team is for real. I think the team is a little better than I even thought. I was thinking 42-43 wins. They could approach 50 if they keep this up, but I do think they're the kind of team because they're they're predicated on certain types of inconsistencies. So Marcus Morris, mid-range jumper is not always going to be falling. Uh, We've seen Reggie have some dry spells. And we've got a lot of three-point shooters who in any given game could go cold. So I think we're going to have a few games here and there, or maybe a stretch of two or three games here and there, where we might struggle. But I think those are going to be the exception to the rule. So keep that jack handy, but use it to celebrate the good times, which I think are going to significantly outweigh the bad ones. And that's the great thing about alcohol, is that the stuff for the happy times and the sad times is sold in the same bottle. So you're right, you should, ju- you should just have it ready at all times. And as a Detroit sports fan, you should just know that already. Our next question came to us from at underscore Alex Smith one Quags, they ask, how do you think Jennings plays once he returns, and will he start alongside Jackson at any point during the season? Alright, so, how do I think Jennings will play? Well, the first thing is... What level will he be when he plays? Like, are they going to rush him straight in? Which I don't think they will. So we'd have to assume that he's going to be able to do most of the things, albeit not at the same pace that he was doing last season. So I would anticipate maybe 22, 23 minutes easing him up. Will he start with Jackson? Absolutely not. I don't think like, defensively that's going to be a killer because you probably ask Jennings, or sorry, Jackson to guard the two, and you saw how he was exploited by Clay Thompson. Admittedly, one of the taller shooting guards, but still, like Jennings still isn't the greatest defender. And then KCP, as good as he is, he's not going to be able to defend that many threes that tower over him as well. So Jennings, I think he'll do all right. I think he'll, if he's not traded, that is, um, which I hope he's not. I think he'll probably, he's obviously going to push Steve Blake to the bench, where he probably won't play as much. But I think he'll, he's going to give that offense what it needs, like another ball handler, because Stanley Johnson can't do it all as, as a rookie. So I would imagine like maybe 10, 11 points and like three or four assists would be maybe slightly on the upper scale of rationality. And if you can do that, 
I think there'll be stretches where you can play with Jackson, but starting, I don't think so, because defensively that's going to murder us. And the next question actually just piggybacks right off of that. So uh, question coming on DetroitBadBoys.com from Harris Ahmad. Let's assume that Brandon Jennings does come back 100% healthy. Do you think he would be more effective as a facilitator for the second unit or as a primary scorer? What do you think, Wags? Why not both? Um, I, I think that's he's shown that last season and the season before with Cheeks. Like he averages seven, 7.6 assists a game in that horrible season a couple of years ago where everything was just going to the dogs. So I think he's shown that he can be an excellent facilitator. The question is, with the options around him, he's probably going to have to be that primary scorer, which is something that he has been labelled mostly throughout his career, especially in Milwaukee. So I would probably sway towards the primary scorer one. And then a bit like how Jackson runs the starting five, just a lot of pick and roll and then flinging it to the open shooters in the corners and on the wings, so I would say scorer. Yeah, I, I think I agree, and I'm not sure what our second unit needs more of right now, is if, do we need more of it, and I guess I'll ask both of you, do we need more of a scoring punch from the bench, or are we just missing someone to facilitate the offense on the bench right now? In my opinion, we're missing that secondary ball handler or secondary um, initiator of the offense. I like that Van Gundy went to Marcus Morris to fill that gap a little bit recently. But that's what we're missing. Steve Blake is not that kind of a point guard. He's you know kind of the secondary point guard in like sort of the Derek uh, Fisher mold, where you can knock down the open three and make a good pass once in a while, but not initiate a whole lot of offense off the dribble. Brandon Jennings the can do that. Exactly. Brandon Jennings can do that if he's healthy. And think about it. If he gets healthy and rounds back into form, and Jody Meeks comes back and gets healthy before the playoffs start, and Stanley Johnson continues his upward trajectory, that's a pretty nice little 1-2-3 punch coming off the bench uh, in preparation for the playoffs. So I think we have something to look forward to there, you know, assuming all those guys stay with the team through the trade deadline. I agree about that, but I'm going to say the opposite option because why not? Um, I think he needs to be the scorer. I think we need the score more, sorry. If you look at just purely who is on the bench, like, and I know Morris is doing a lot of the bench score, like scoring with the bench unit, he's the number one option. But I think we ranked last in the league so far in actual bench points per game. Um, like Tonda, Baines, Bullet when he plays, yes, they are all mostly slot-up guys and they need a facilitator. But I think that Jennings needs to be the guy who can just like, go in, get you a quick 10, 12 points. I mean, we tied Golden State in points off the bench last game, and that was surprising to me because so far our bench has looked inept and inebriated on offense so far. They just look really slow, so I would say the score is more important. But I agree with the reasoning that you that Gold's put forward about facilitator. Yeah, and I think we actually we kind of agree because when I'm thinking about initiator, I don't necessarily mean passer. I mean... Someone who can create yeah. his own shot and get the offense kickstarted for everybody else. So I think I probably actually agree with you almost completely. I think Brandon Jennings coming in and scoring 10 points, which leads to the defense sort of focusing on him and then he has the capacity to find other people, could be exactly what we need for a spring playoff push. Yeah, definitely. So let's move on to the next question. Next question comes from Muggins12 on DetroitBadBoys.com. Do you think Monroe was holding back Andre's game so much now that we've seen Andre Drummond kind of blow up in the last few games? 
And then he goes on to say that he loved Moose, but man, Andre's play has just been so great. So I'll turn it over to Gulker. I know we've talked a little bit, and we did so with, with Sean Core about Greg Monroe. Was he holding Andre back? Is that what we can take out of the first seven games? It's undeniable that Andre Jones' emergence as a dominant center aligns with Greg's departure from Detroit. Can't dispute that. I think it has a lot less to do with Greg Monroe as a player and a lot more to do with the fact that Dre is the primary big man operating in space. So I don't think it's necessarily that there was some sort of you know awkward chemistry and that Greg's game somehow detracted from Andre's game. I think it's just the fact that they're really two centers that were trying to play next to each other, and they just didn't fit. And so both of them are going to have um, opportunities in their new roles that they couldn't have had when they're sharing the court together. I think Dre is probably the more dominant player, and I think that's becoming clear, and I think it's going to become even more clear over the next couple of years. But also keep in mind that Greg Monroe is having a fantastic season in Milwaukee. So I don't think there was any deficiency in Greg Monroe. I think it's really that they just didn't fit together. There was, there was too much player uh, in too little space, and they kind of needed to get out of each other's way for them both to succeed uh, kind of at their upper limits of their capacity. Had you asked me this last season, I would have said that I don't think, I would have thought that they could have coexisted still because Trump is still averaging 13 and 13. With Moose, so like obviously I had no idea he was going to go on to average twenty and twenty so far this season. But now, yeah, I totally agree. Like he just got more space, and like Ilyasova is maybe not as good a rebounder as Monroe, but he still gets his fair share. He gets about five or six, I think. Um, but Andre, like he's got so much more space now, like to rebound, and on the offensive end, it, I think it helps that Jackson, like it's. You can't talk about one without the other, like especially with Greg Monroe. That stretch that he missed last season with Reggie Jackson really starting to kick on. Um, that he's attacking more, and like teams are staying with Drummond, but when they don't, they can just toss it to Drummond, and his post moves are developing. Like Monroe's, like, I love Moose as well, but yes, I would say, like if this is the result of Moose leaving, then enjoy Milwaukee. Yeah, and I'm going to throw one one little statistic into the mix. Um, even though I know they're not the most exciting things to always talk about. But um, you look at what Greg Monroe did on the glass last year for us, and you compare that and contrast that with what we're seeing from the Pistons this year. Drummond averaging 19.6 boards per game. The next closest Piston, 6.3. So I think we're seeing a little bit of diminishing returns sort of in the opposite direction where – Greg Monroe's departure, Andre Drummond's getting some of those rebounds that Greg Monroe might have otherwise have gotten, and maybe a few of those inside buckets as well. So while I ultimately agree with you, Craig, I just I had to throw that out there because I do think there's a little bit of a statistical explanation at play as well. well. The one thing I can say I do hope for, because Gulker, you're right, that Greg Monroe is playing very well in Milwaukee, and on this four-game winning streak that they're on right now, even though they've played... New York, Brooklyn, and Philly in those four games. Monroe has played very well, and I just hope that there's a spot for both of them in the All-Star game because I think it would just kind of put to rest this conversation that many Pistons fans have had over the last year, which is, you know, which one gives us the best chance to win. I think they're both good players, and we're seeing the emergence of a a possible superstar in Andre Drummond, but 
I'm glad that Monroe is having success in Milwaukee, and I, I just hope that there's room for both of them in the All-Star game. I think it would be great to see them both being successful in their own right. He's such a professional. You can't really wish him not to have success. Like, he never complained or anything. And even when there was, like, it was really great about what he was going to do, he still went out there and got 16 and 10. So I don't see how anyone can hate the man. Definitely. And I think we kind of answered the second part of Muggins' question when we talked about SVG and just the spacing. He asked, can you explain at a fundamental level what SVG is going for with this team? The the spacing that we talked about and what's led to Drummond's success so far is part of that system. It's part of what made Dwight Howard so great in Orlando. It's what's making this team go so far. I think, Quags, you said it best. It's just winning basketball. That, that's that's the fundamental that's working right now, is it's producing winning basketball for this team. Winning Q-Zol. It definitely does, yes. Uh, another question that came in through DetroitBadBoys.com came from Orlando Woolridge versus Bison Dell. Is anyone else troubled by Andre Drummond's body language out there at times? What a great name for a start. Yeah, f- phenomenal name. Usually, yes, but... Well, not really, actually. Let, let me explain. He looks really mad during the Golden State game. And I like that. I want to see, because so often we've spoken about how he sort of pouts around with lollipops and it's all fun and games in Andre Drummond universe. And then last night, throwing towels on cameras and just looking on the French, he doesn't look pissed off. So I think it's just, yes, I think he's becoming a leader and I think that that's really good. I don't see why. And he saw after the Portland game, him and Jackson, he was like yelling at Jackson and he even said at half time, he spoke to Jackson. He's becoming that leader. I think his body language is really improving. Um, I don't have a problem with that at all. If I'm interpreting and reading between the lines here correctly, I've seen this in a couple of the game threads, actually. While the Pistons haven't been playing well, so against Indiana uh, and then early in the Portland game, Andre Drummond is an emotional player. And, and I empathize with that because that's the kind of player I was when I played. When I wasn't playing well in high school and in college, you could read it in my face and you could read it in my body language. It was there and it was obvious. I think some people interpret that as selfishness, uh, as if people are so, you know, a guy like Andre Drummond who's really emotional is so wrapped up in his own performance that he's not able to see past his own performance in, in the bigger picture of what's happening. And I guess what I would say to those people is there's a different way to think about it. And, and the way to think about it is this. If you're a player that cares more about winning than anything else and you know you're capable of contributing to your team winning and you're not delivering, you're actually experiencing disappointment in the fact that you're not contributing to the team, not selfishness because you're not getting the stat line that you want. So I do see some of that, what some people are calling sulking. I can see that when Andre Drummond's not playing well, his emotions bear that out. But I would encourage people to, to look at it from the perspective that I just proposed, which is Andre Drummond knows what he's capable of, and he understands the weight that he's carrying on his shoulders. He knows that without his 15 points and 15 boards or more, the team's going to struggle to win. And, and I think that's ultimately what it's about for him. He wants this team to succeed. He knows he's a key part of it, and so he knows he's letting people down if he's not. Uh, producing what he, what he's capable of. Maybe all that weight's just for the shoulder hit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually don't mind it just because I've really liked what I've seen out of him just in his professional development, pushing the contract extension talks, 
off until this next offseason. I think that that shows a bit of, you know, he's he's bought into this team concept. And grabbing the mic on opening night, I know it's something small, but being the person who is speaking for the team, I, I think it's something like that that shows he's taking on a bit of a leadership role. So now the sulking, yeah. to me, doesn't look like someone who is disengaged with the game. It just looks like someone who just wants to play better and wants to win every game and win every possession. So I think it's changed. Because when he was at UConn, this sulking and this, uh, you know, kind of questioning his character was part of the reason he fell to us in the draft. Now I think it's kind of just turned into something else. Yeah, absolutely. And the other piece here is that it cuts both ways because when players who are really emotional are riding those sorts of emotional highs, you get some of the best basketball out of them that you're going to see. And we saw that, right? I mean, we saw that in the post-Josh Smith era. Brandon Jennings was sort of the ringleader, and Anthony Tolliver was instrumental in being a really passionate player. I think Drummond's got some of that in him as well, and as he as he emerges as the leader, I think the team's going to want to top, tap into that. They're going to want to figure out, you know, how do we feed off this emotion and how do we stay motivated over the course of a grueling 82-game season in the midst of all these back-to-backs and so on. For me, there are some players that just play really well when they play mad, when they're angry. Like you remember at the start of the year, he said he was sick and tired of people laughing at us, like saying that we were losers, and then... When you want to go out and prove someone wrong, and like when you're mad, especially if things aren't going your way, you just really want to stick it in someone's face. That's when, like for me, with certain things, that's when you do your absolute best because it's like extra motivation if you need it. Like when you're mad, like for me, when you're angry, that's like when you can play some of your best basketball. Like you just want to hurt someone so bad on the court. Yeah, and I think he's already shown that. That you're right. That he has the that ability to just kind of turn it on and to find a second gear. And if that makes him an emotional player, and that there might be another side to that, I, I just I think I'm okay with it because the output so far it hasn't been negative. You know, if you if you add it all up, it's it's not enough for me to worry about it. And I think he's still becoming a, a professional NBA player. He hasn't been in the league long enough for me to to really worry about it because I've already seen growth from him. Let's not forget, he's still 22 as well. That's very true. Yeah, just 22 years old. So I think that's uh, that wraps up our first edition of Ask DBB. Again, hashtag Ask DBB on Twitter. Find us on DetroitBadBoys.com as a place to ask us questions, and we'll continue to answer those questions for you. So thanks so much for sending those in and continue to do so. We'll try to hit as many of them as we can each week. And that brings us to the end of another week of this podcast. Thank you so much, Quags, for joining us from Indiana, finding time and space to record this on a, on a Tuesday. Thank you. Well, I finished class at 6.30, so I thought, why not? I wasn't going to do work. It's okay, I'm foreign. I get away with things here. I'm sure the accent is, is a good way of getting away with a, a certain amount of things. And Ben Gulker, again, thank you for joining me for another episode, and uh, I'll be talking to you next week. Yeah, it's a blast, guys. It's a lot of fun. The first sort of international kind of episode of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast um, but yeah, we'll see in the comments, we'll see in the game threads. I'm still from another country. Yeah, yeah. Right, accents don't lie. That, yeah, clearly that's coming from somewhere. That's, you're right, this is our first international episode. And thank you also to everyone who listened to the last episode. Since I have started on this podcast, the first episode to get over a thousand listens, I, I really appreciate that. Maybe it's good we bring a little international flavor now that this is growing. If you want, next time I come on, I can do my American accent, but that might be a bit insulting. Save it. Save it. I don't even want to hear it now. It probably is very insulting.
but we'll we'll save that for another uh, <laughs> another I, episode. I have a thing for accents. So I think you might be surprised. Oh, okay. It just, it just comes out as really southern. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I can't wait for you to join us again after the West Coast trip is all done next week on the Detroit Bad Boys podcast.